Welcome back to another Work Human Radio. I'm your host, Mike Wood, and today we're going to be joined by uh, one of the good friends of the whole Work Human movement. You may have seen uh, him and some of his staff at a couple of different Work Humans over the years. It's Norm Laviolette of the Improv Asylum in Boston. He owns that. It's also in uh, New York as well. But he's going to be talking about the impact of uh, COVID on his business and different ways we can try to get through a lot of what's happening with uh, the skills that you can learn in improv and uh, try to uh, try to laugh a little bit. So uh, enjoy Steve Pemberton's talk with Norm Laviolette. Hey, everybody. It's Steve Pemberton, Chief Human Resources Officer at Work Human, joining you again. And today I'm happy to be talking with Norm Laviolette, co-founder and CEO of Improv Asylum like that name, Norm, want to learn a little bit more about it. Uh, it's a comedy theater company located in Boston and New York. Norm is a longtime friend of Work Human, having presented at various Work Human Live events over the years, including the very first event in 2015. Norm, great to have you with us today. How are you? Great to be here, and I'm uh, doing real well. Doing real well. Now, where are you? Where is uh, New York, Boston, where are you? Uh, I am uh, outside of Boston, so uh, so I live down uh, in a place called Duxbury, Massachusetts, which is just south of Boston, down kind of on the ocean. So I am uh, I am uh, here in Massachusetts because that's where our, our headquarters are uh, out of Boston, in Massachusetts. But we have headquarters okay. in Boston and New York City. And is that where you were uh, raised? Was it in Duxbury? No, definitely not. Uh, I was raised uh, I was raised in a small town in Massachusetts called Grafton, Massachusetts. It was a small little mill town by Worcester, Mass. Uh, and uh, and it was a great place to grow up, but uh, but it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've worked uh, I work in entertainment comedy now, but I I, I grew up in a, an incredibly small lower blue collar upbringing that you know would never indicate that I, I would go on to uh, you know build these companies in comedy. Yeah, uh, so I am from a similar town, uh, New Bedford. Oh, now, New Bedford. New Bedford, yeah. that's right. So you've heard of New Bedford because you say it exactly the way we would. Uh, yeah, it's New Bedford. You kind of leave off the ORD or you mix it up a little bit. So Absolutely, man. Yeah, so you know, I mean, you, you know, that's, that's you know, certainly it's, it's a blue-collar working town, commercial fishing, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, isn't it amazing, uh, you know, especially when you're in these worlds that you have been in, and I don't know if you have this reaction knowing that I do, but similarly to growing up in a town like that, and there's just a certain ebb and flow and kind of wisdom that comes from those towns that gets overlooked a lot. Is, is, uh, I think it's an advantage. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's actually a real advantage for me in what I've done, both as a, as a performer, but then also as a business owner and an entrepreneur. I think it's hands down an advantage to come from a background like that because you get a sensibility of, of what you got to do to make it work. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not theoretical. When, when, when your dad's a, a truck driver and your mom walks on the auto line, uh, that ain't theoretical work. That's real work. Uh, and I think I've always found that to be a great advantage coming from that background. Yeah. I mean, I no, it probably hasn't been until recently that I actually sat down and thought about it and said, I don't ever recall in my childhood seeing somebody go to work with a tie on. Like that wasn't what I saw. It was like blue uniforms, bus drivers, mail. I mean, maybe the most quote unquote high station person I would have met was a doctor. That was just not, um, <laughs> you know, kind of around. And, and you're right about uh, about about sensibility. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you see that, when you, when you grow up that way, you know, look, we all work very hard at what we do and, and, and I work hard at what I do, but I always say it's not hard work. Hard, hard work was, was like I say, you know, my mom, she was 4'11 and she worked at the General Motors factory line in, in Framingham, Massachusetts. That's hard work. You know, my dad, he, you know, before he was a truck driver, before he was a truck driver, he worked at the Winter Hill Freezer uh, warehouse where every day he went in and it was minus 30 degrees all day long because he's working in the freezer, you know? So, you know, whenever I start lamenting, woe is me, how hard it is in entertainment. And then you, you remember that's, that's yeah. yeah, exactly right. Well, I mentioned at the outset, the name improv asylum, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the history of how I got started uh, is, is implied in the name. Yeah. Well, well, you know, we started, so Improv Asylum now has been around, uh, we're on our, I think, 22nd year. Uh, it's starting much right. like being an adult, you start losing track. Like, how old am I this year? Hmm, what is my birthday? Uh, but I believe it's 22 years. And, you know, when we started, when, when we started Improv Asylum, improv as a comedy genre, it, it wasn't in the commercial um, vernacular at that point, really. It, you know, everybody understood a new stand-up, but improv was, I, I mean, it, from a commercial platform, it didn't really exist, um, except for a very niche kind of way. But we were doing a show at the Hard Rock Cafe uh, in Boston on Clarendon Street. And, you know, for us, we'd always been very much inspired by Second City, uh, which I think probably many people have heard of. And, and you know, we looked at it, we're like, well, there wasn't a professional sketch and improv type of theater in Boston at the time, like Second City. So, you know, it was the old just young enough and dumb enough to think that maybe we could do it. And, uh, and so, you know, we, 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 we went for it and where asylum came from, you know, the idea came from, sure. It, it has, it has a dual connotation. It has the connotation of being like kind of crazy and wacky, but on the other hand, you know, and how we, we very much look at it, it was a, it was a safe place to do good work, right? You know, mm-hmm. asylum is a place that you go to, uh, to, to creatively be safe, to take some chances because, because you can't do comedy and you certainly can't do improvisation without taking tons and tons of risks. What has been the impact of COVID-19 uh, on you and, and on uh, Improv Asylum? Well, it's been pretty big. Uh, we've, uh, we've had to close down all of our theaters and all of our venues. So I own, uh, I own Improv Asylum in Boston and New York City. We also own a stand-up comedy club here in, in the city of Boston called Laugh Boston. So, you know, on one level, it's been... Uh, you know, really devastating in in the fact that we've had to close everything down. With that said, with that said, we fully anticipate and we are in in a position that that we anticipate that all of our theaters and clubs are are coming back. And I think while I came up as a performer, you know, these are these are multi-million dollar companies now. And, and so you, you have to operate them a certain way. And I'm very proud of my staff in that that we've run our company so that when we when this is over, we're all going to come back, and, and that that's you know that's both the business end and the artistic end. And I think when you're in an artistic uh, venture like myself, a lot of times people don't focus on the business side of things, but it's incredibly important because if we didn't focus on the business side, there's a real good chance we wouldn't be coming back. Uh, out of this. So, uh, so I think we're going to be okay. But right now, there are no shows. There's really very, at the moment, very little revenue coming in. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of the way it is. So, you, you, the, you know, you see a lot of these things kind of going online and those kinds of things. Um, um, has there been any opportunity to pivot like that uh, for you at all? 
Yeah, there has been. I mean, it's a couple of things. When, when from an entertainment standpoint, I've been a little, and we've been a little slow uh, to move there, and that's been that's been by design. Uh, you know, I felt like when all this happened and we had to close the companies down, and I had to furlough a whole bunch of people. I mean, that's the very painful stuff. Certainly more painful for them because they're they're, they're being furloughed. But but the emotional aspect of it all was very painful. Um, and, and honestly, when all that happened, I, I didn't want to rush to start just putting stuff online to put it online. It's like, you know, does the, the world is ending and collapsing. Do I really need to rush to put an improv class online? I don't know. I don't know if that's what the world needs. You know, when, when the world ended on Friday, I don't know if you needed a class on Monday. Um, so, you know, what I like to do is I want to take a little bit of time see what was being done. Because while I think it's a great instinct and impulse, especially from the artistic community, to create online, I also want to make sure that I'm doing it in a, in a, in a value-add way where, where it's good, where people are really benefiting from it. And so now that we've got a you know, month or two months into this, we are starting to see the opportunity to, to pivot. I mean, you know, we're not unlike anybody else where we'd be foolish not to take advantage of or figure out how to work in, you know, in the online virtual Zoom types of medium. And, and so it's been very interesting because we took the time and we didn't rush into it. I think we have a much better handling of bringing out our online classes, our online corporate training programs, because we were able to say, well, we don't need to rush it. Let's make sure we're doing it in a thoughtful way. So now we're starting to offer online improv classes, online, you know, our, our improv corporate training type of seminars. And what we're finding, I, a little bit to my surprise, but I suppose maybe not to everybody's surprise, there's been quite a clamoring for it. So that's been pretty interesting. You know, to your earlier point about, you know, world ends on Friday, show on show on Monday, and clearly this is an incredibly uh, difficult, challenging, and very serious uh, life event that we are globally uh, experiencing. And it seems like so much of the humor, a lot of it, is anchored in uh, that which is political, and you know the the the, the kind of levity that always has kind of an edge to it and and winds up getting politicized too. Comedy does, as uh, you know better certainly than I do. How, how do you find the balance between, you know, you on the one hand, you recognize the seriousness of it, but there's this other part of good humor and, and, and laughter that sustains a spirit. Like, how do you, how do you go about navigating that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, the, the, there's, you know, there's, there's a very well known saying, as we all know, that, you know, laughter is the best medicine. Um, I would dispute that. I would say it's penicillin. I think penicillin is the best medicine. So definitely go with penicillin over laughter if you have the choice, one or the other. Uh, but after penicillin, uh, you know, laughter is a, a very important thing, right? And, and what it is, what, what, what laughter is doing is it's an emotional response, it's a stress relief. That's what happens when you laugh. You're letting stress. Out, you know, and, and there's a whole bunch of other things going on, but that's what it is. And that's very, very important. You know, I always say, you know, in, in good times, people want to laugh. In bad times, people need to laugh, right? And, 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 and we, we need that. I think everybody has a different brand or style or, or sense of humor. Um, but the way we've always approached things is we're less political and we're more, uh, more kind of what's go just kind of the everyday port. Um, 
goings on of the world. So I think we don't, you know, go hard at one thing or the or the other because when you when when you go, we want to have a very large audience and a broad audience. And so I think that if you go at it from one political point or another, it's not good or bad. I'm I'm a pretty middle of the road guy, but but you're definitely going to alienate some things. Um, I think the way we do it, and I, and that's what improvisation lends it to, because when you're doing improv, you're not telling jokes, right? you're having you're having a conversation with the other person on the stage and you're following a thread wherever it goes and so therefore the humor comes out of the unexpected of where the story goes as opposed to stand up comedy and I own stand up comedy clubs that's a person a man or a woman coming up on stage putting up their point of view improv i think why why people enjoy it so much is because you can typically go to an improv show and it's not going to be overly politically charged one way or the other. And and I think sometimes, sometimes people are like, what I find, whatever your political views are, people are like, I just don't want to hear any more about it. I just want to laugh. And, and, you know, you get exhausted by, by, you know, the political side of things. Yeah. I, I count me in that camp. You know, I, I, uh, exactly that way where I'm parsing kind of what I see because of all of the, and you're like, Oh my. And, and no doubt it's very different than what you grew up like in, in Grafton, like people in Grafton and New Bedford didn't solve the problems of their life that way, the, the way you see it, you know, so you really don't understand coming from, coming from that environment. Right. No, absolutely. It, it was not with the way we grew up. It wasn't, <laughs> politics and all that kind of stuff was just like another thing. Like, yeah, well, let those people do what they do. It doesn't, it sounds silly, but it almost doesn't affect my life. I mean, obviously it does, but, but not, not to the degree that, that it's, you know, put out in the media today. Um, yeah. And the thing is, but, and it's not the media's fault, right? It, it's, but it's addictive. It, it's, you hear it and you're like, it, because it's designed to be such. And I find that the, the, you know, the best thing you can do is get yourself, you know, Update yourself in the morning and what the hell happened and then turn it all off. And then update yourself at the end of the day, see if anything new has happened and turn it all off again. That, that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of, um, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy was getting his profanity. He was getting uh, criticized and he called Richard Pryor and he said, um, hey, I'm getting a lot of criticism. Uh, what do you think about and Richard Price said, well, do the people laugh? Uh, and uh, he said, yeah. He goes, well, then you keep saying it. <laughs> and, and, and media is a bit like that, right? Does, does, it, does it sell? Then whatever that is, you keep saying it, you know? Uh, and and, and you, can, you can rail against the media, but, but that's kind of that business. That, that's what it does, you know? So turn it off if you, if you, if you don't want to watch it. And I think, I think with humor, you know, the, the trick there is you do need to laugh. And, and it's not to say, you're not, you're not making light of, of what's going on, but the role of the comedian has always been through the dawn of time is to bring levity to tense moments. That, mm. That's why the jester existed. Uh, that's why there was always, you know, now it's like anything else. The jester can walk a very fine line between making the court laugh and having his head cut off. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he had to get your head cut off. But the good thing is, there's always a lot of other jesters coming along. So, yeah. you know, in light of all everything that continues, uh, you know, to move and, and, and shift and change and shape, what, what are some of the, um, 
kind of ways of working? What are some of the tactics uh, that you employ in the world of improv that can help people stay connected and engaged, especially in this world of teleconferencing and uh, video conferencing? Improv it, at its heart it is all about uh, listening to somebody else. I, I mean, that's what it is. So w- whenever anybody asks me what makes a good improvisational comedian or actor, is it that they're fast or that they're funny or they can think quick? I mean, th- those are all components to it, of course. But at its core, it's the ability to listen to somebody else. I can't improvise a scene if I'm not listening to you. Right? You know, that's what we're doing in building together. And and I find that it, it that more than anything else. In, in this environment, when you're on these multiple Zoom calls with all kinds of window, is it really forces you to have to listen and shut up a little bit, right? One of the, one of the upsides that I found to these kind of Zoom meetings is because you see everybody and in, in, in essence, you see yourself as well, the, the person that tends to go off on these long diatribes, they don't do that as much anymore. Because they're very aware that other people are watching or paying attention. And so I think the awareness of other people, the ability to... It's a very simple thing. But in improvisation, we're trained where if I'm speaking, if you were to just immediately start to talk right now, I'm trained to stop. Like that, that, that's how we're trained. And so when, when you see us on stage, people are like, well, how do you guys not talk over each other? How do you not step on each other? It's just how I've been trained. I might be mid-sentence, but if you take the focus, I stop. And that is, is something that is very, very useful on these kind of Zoom calls. Wow. The number of calls that I've been on, you've been on, where you don't have an understanding of that technique and people are trying to do some equivalent of raising their hand. And so they, who can get in first and, you know, it's kind of this back, back and forth. That's a, that's a really good point. I, I will, I'll share that with, uh, with my own team, actually, because I'm worried about that. You know, like, how do you get heard when you have you know, 15 people on a call, you know, potentially? Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. When you do your calls, when you do, when you do your calls, do, do you act as the moderator or is there a moderator involved? I'm, you, I'm the one who's the moderator usually. I, Another another very good tactic. I'm sure that that you do it, and other people know out there. But human nature is 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 still going to be the same, whether you're 15 people in a room or 15 people on a Zoom call. I think it becomes very important as a leader, right? It, it's your job and it's our job to to bring everybody into the ensemble. And so it becomes it becomes the leader's job to make sure that you're paying attention, saying like, "Hey, we haven't heard from Jim. Jim, what are your thoughts on this?" And Jim has just as many thoughts as everybody else. But it's the leader's job to pull that out of them as opposed to be the one constantly talking. So I think that becomes another very important thing as the facilitator or the leader to be cognizant and present in that room to say, I haven't heard from all these people. Or you're like, you know, okay, Gary, we've heard from you five times. Tamp it down, Gary. We get the point. We, we, we need to hear from Jim or, or whomever. Yeah, yeah. That, that's great, great counsels. Uh... Maybe it'd be one of the behavioral things that will emerge out of this. We'll start using our, our mouth and ears and the proportion they were given to us. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Especially. Uh, so, hey, let me ask a grafting guy this. Have you ever quite figured out why the rush on toilet paper? I haven't figured that out yet. Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't. It, you know, with everybody, with everybody, the rush on toilet paper on this, I'm like, first of all, how many how many slices of that toilet paper are you using, right? I mean, I, I forget who used to do it. It was, I don't know if it was Eddie Murphy or whatever, but like, you know, the oven mitt, like what, what, are, you, what are you doing? 
how much do you need? And I think there's that, there's that sense of like, it all goes back to, you know, potty humor. People are obsessed with their bodily fluids and their naughty bits. People are, they always will be, they always have been, have been. If you go all the way back into humor and writing and Chaucer and all that stuff, right? It's all poop jokes and, and, and genitalia jokes. And so I think we're just obsessed uh, with, with our, our naughty bits. So I, I don't know what it is. My, my attitude is like, hey, worse comes to worse, you know, grab a whole big thing of moss out in the backyard. It does the trick. What the caveman did. <laughs> For sure. Well, no, I'm, uh, lastly, just, uh, you know, we, we certainly have appreciated a relationship with you, you know, over, over the years. Um, and, and you've been around us enough to know that we always talk about gratitude. Uh, so what are you most grateful for today? For me, what I'm most grateful for today, and it's really been a truism since all this has happened, is the fact that I've been able to be around my family and these people that obviously I live with, but in a way that I, that I just haven't had the opportunity. And I don't know that I would ever have the, uh, ever have the opportunity to be around uh, in, in a normal working environment. And, and that's been kind of the amazing thing. And I, and I'll really be interested to see, because I think that the, there's a chance for an awakening to happen, right? I mean, you you get to do what you love. I certainly get to do what I love, and I work in a really interesting medium. Um, but but I have to believe that if I didn't, and I and I was going through this experience of being around my family and having the opportunity to you know kind of connect with them in a way that I haven't always, I'd question if I'd want to go back to the way I was working. You know, if if I'm you know if if I'm just selling insurance and there's nothing wrong with selling insurance selling insurance is fine it's lovely we need insurance uh because clearly there's disasters and we're all going to die so great love insurance but if all I'm doing is selling insurance maybe I'm going to take stock and say hey there's there's an opportunity to to approach the next part of my life differently and I and I think that's what I'm really grateful for is is to kind of have that time to you know really be forced to to reflect on it all I, I think you're exactly right. I, I suspect that um, you know the older generations, uh, including communities that we grew up, the thing that they saw: uh, world wars, depression, civil rights movement, threat of nuclear war. The family dinner meant a lot to them because they kind of already understood how fragile life was because of what they had experienced, and we, in some ways, are seeing. Uh, one life event, they saw like three or four like this or the threat of them uh, that um, uh, I hope will, one, not just give us that kind of connection to one another as you described, uh, but also this greater reverence for a lot of them. And regrettably, so we know that we're losing a lot of them too, uh, you know, because of this. If that doesn't, you know, to your earlier point about making you stop and listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what will. I, I I agree, and and look, you know, I get to do what I love to do, but there's no doubt that I, I've spent a lot of time reflecting and saying, well, you know, and what else do I want to do? You know, what else do I have the ability to do? And and it's not, you know, yeah, sure, it can be creating another company or business or whatever. But on the other hand, it's like, well, but but what else? What am I also not partaking in that I'd like to? Uh, simple things or charitable things like. Uh, you know, be, be, you know, you, you talk about the, the the dinner table. You know, I don't know how your family works, but for us, in a normal working environment, we probably have a family dinner two to three times a week with school and sports and work and my job and stuff like that. But we've had family dinners every single night for for two months now, 
and it's fa- it's fantastic. And and yeah, that's that's how I used to. That's how I grew up. We had dinner every night, and and you you know going back can be a pretty nice thing. So. Sherwood, Sherwood. No, really, what a great pleasure to uh, catch, to one, to meet you and spend some time uh, talking with you. But I uh, completely uh, heard you loud and clear on the intersection of what you gather and gain from improv and its application, you know, to this world. And not just the levity, but the listening, too. So thanks for that. No problem. Well, you know, we uh, I love love to uh, work with uh, you guys. Work Human is is a fantastic organization. Everything that you put forward to, especially especially now, and and what everything you know where everything is at and what is going on, the messages uh, that I think that your organization puts forward are are so important, are so gratifying. So you know, thank you, uh, thank you for for uh, spreading the gospel, as it were. We can't wait to do it with you again in person for sure. Alrighty. Norm, it was great chatting with you. I think we learned a lot about improv and, and the importance of listening. I was struck by uh, you making that connection for us that while it's helpful to be fast and funny in the world of improv, the skill that you need the most is listening. And that is uh, truer now than perhaps it has ever been. So thanks for sharing those wisdom, uh, that wisdom and those insights uh, with us. And thanks for all of you for continuing to tune in to this Keeping Work Human series. We'll talk to you real soon.